0: Welcome to the fifth episode of Africa a country talk. Um, you hear the voice? Yeah, I'm on screen, you can see me. I'm Sean Jacobs, the editor of Africa's a country. I'm and with me is Will Shoki, a staff writer. Uh we are broadcasting live on YouTube and I think we are also live on Facebook. Um today we're gonna start like on a on a, on a good note. We wanna say firstly, belated happy birthday to Wally Yinka, who turned 86 years old today. Yesterday, sorry, he turned 86 yesterday, and um, I thought it would be fun to like read uh, two quotes by the first African to win the Nobel Prize for Literature and probably the only winner of that prize apart from Bob Dylan to make an album, which you can read about it by the way in Africa as a country, and to celebrate Uncle Wally's genius, uh, I'm gonna just <laughs> I thought it'd be fun to just read these two quotes by him. One is what he said about Robert Mugabe. Um, when when Robert Mugabe was still the life president of Zimbabwe and firmly entrenched in power there. And this is what Uncle Wally said. He said Mugabe was still riding it out on his own wall, blotting out the horizon for others with his grossly inflated ego. And then the one that I actually love even better is what he said about the internet, which is from where we are broadcasting today. And I think it's real fun to just do it right here. He said, I do not tweet, blog, or whatever goes on in this increasingly promiscuous medium. I do not run a Facebook, even though I'm aware that one or two serious-minded individuals or groups have instituted some such forum on their own for the purpose of disseminating factual information on my activities. I neither contribute to nor comment on the contents of their calendar to speak generally internet abuse is getting to be a universal plague, one that goes beyond personal embarrassment and umbrage. I strongly recommend collective professional action to protect the integrity of the medium and save it from becoming, and I love this part, a mere vomitorium for unprincipled scallywags with or even with no particular axe to grind, unquote. So as a... I think I suppose we're unprincipled scallywags, Will. I do you off. think about this.
1: Go off. I tell the old man to go off. I mean, I think he's exactly right about the perniciousness of the internet. And it's it just feels all the more clear during a pandemic to just see everyone get lost in the ocean of polemics and completely ignore that we're in the midst of a, of a global pandemic, that we're seeing escalating inequality across the world. And there's also an imminent ecological crisis. Um, I think one of, the, one of the best comments I've seen on this is David Reef, uh, the American writer. He was talking about all of the, the cancel culture debates that are raging right now. And he was saying that it feels like both sides are playing a savage game of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic and the ship is planet Earth. And I'm like, you know, these guys have a point and is and w- completely right.
0: Slow yep, Slow down, people. Slow down all over these internets. Anyway, you can read a lot of articles. We've done a few of stuff that he said and done, including those the ones that I read, what he said about Mugabe and what he said about the internet on our website. And as I, as I said earlier, you can also read the article about his early 1980s pop album that he produced, which is quite a fun read, uh, written by Masood, a young Ghanaian writer, writer. So happy birthday, Oga. Enjoy the day. Now, back to the business that we have here today. Um, one thing you're going to notice today is that we will try out a new format, um, basically, like, let's say a format change, and it's mostly because we're still experimenting with the format. So, if you're wondering, the the idea with the pro- program, and this is why we do this kind of format, is we want to achieve three things with it. One, we want to be informative. Two, we want to be informal. So, as you may notice, okay, I have a shirt on. I think Will has a shirt on too. And I still we got the don't hat. Dress up. I- I still got the hat on, and we are not lecturing to you. So this is not about you know dressing up, looking all formal, we don't want to lecture to you. And three, we want to introduce our viewers and listeners to the people who work on the site um, and to our wider community. And so that is why we bring the guests. And as we've said before, as I've said every week, I remind people of the previous guests because I'm trying to get people to go back to the archive and watch the shows. We've had great guests thus far. We've had the anthropologists. Paul T. Smith from Harvard who talked about police reforms uh, reform. or abolishing the police oh. actually. Sorry, say what? Paul T. Clark. You called him Paul T. Smith. Just uh Paul T. Just T. Clark. I story. Story. Paul T. That's yeah. a China. That's a China, by the way. Um, I don't know why I know that. Um, Paul T. Clark and one Gui Kamari, um, they were anthropologists. Wangui came and talked about Kenya, the police, um, Kenyan politics. We've had the political scientist Sahit Saini last week, great discussion about Nigeria, including a very spirited discussion about Nigerian culture, like uh, politics and culture. Um, and also we've had the the um, economist Grief uh, Chalwar, who was on uh, two weeks ago. Um, so today we're going to try out a new format. you oh, just want to say a little bit about what that yeah. format is going to be.
1: Yeah, to give everyone a heads up, today we want to do three things on the show. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to open up by discussing a series of topics that everyone is talking about or should be talking about, and we'll work our way through that. And then we're going to be having a wonderful guest on today's program. We're going to have the filmmaker and academic Dylan Valley, who's also an editorial board member at Africa's a Country, and he's going to be talking about his new virtual reality film on an occupation here in Johannesburg, South Africa. And then after that, in the final segment, we're going to be dealing with all of the questions that you're sending to us, either via social media, on the Facebook stream, or in our inbox, or in the YouTube comments. So we'd be especially interested in the questions for our guests. So feel free to type your questions here and start the discussion on the show. We look forward to it.
0: Why don't we? Why don't we jump, jump in, in we, and sure. we talk? let uh, jump in and talk about what we think are like the big issues of the week. Do you want to start off? Do you want to start us off? Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk very quickly about
1: developments here in South Africa. So on Sunday night, President Cyril Ramaphosa addressed the nation again, just to talk about South Africa's risk-adjusted strategy for the COVID-19 pandemic. South Africa has been on a lockdown since March. Um, I think more than three and a half months have passed now since then. Um, it's been really tough. Like just the the strain, the mental strain and cost of, of staying indoors for an extended period of time has been really difficult, I think, personally for a lot of people. Um, but more importantly, it's been... Really, really devastating for those who are suffering from the pandemic and its ravages. Um, South Africa, I think, at the moment now has the fourth highest rates of daily increase across the world, after the United States, India, and Brazil were the fourth highest. And so far, we have something about something around like 276,000 cases of coronavirus, which have been confirmed, and just over 4,000 deaths. So. We are very much approaching our peak infections and we are fully in the midst of the coronavirus storm. And I think that South Africans are at the moment reflecting on whether or not our approach to the pandemic has been a successful one, especially since when the lockdown started in March, the justification given was that the government wanted to prepare our national health system to be ready experience the surgeon in infections, which is what we are experiencing now, and make sure that there are enough critical care beds, that enough personal protective equipment is distributed to frontline healthcare workers, make sure that we have enough ventilators and just to overall prepare the health system. The question is now and what we are looking at the moment is whether or not that's actually the case. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like it has been. Now, the very bizarre thing about this stage of the pandemic is that, on the one hand, the projected rate of transmission isn't actually as high as we initially thought it would be. Um, I think, in some of the earliest sort of and scariest projections, people were saying that by July, South Africa might have upwards of 500,000 or a million cases of coronavirus confirmed. That hasn't happened. But at the same time, strangely enough, we still have a health system, which despite the country going under a lockdown to prepare is still suffering from critical shortages of care beds, critical shortages of personal protective equipment and just general failure. So in the, in the provinces that are experiencing the surge now, such as the Eastern Cape or Gauteng where I am, We're seeing a lot of horrifying reports of hospitals having to turn away patients, some patients having to sleep on the floor, and just generally chaos, uh, fear, anxiety, and stress from frontline workers who are wondering how it happened that despite the government putting a country under a nationwide lockdown, our health system still being ill-prepared and unsupported to experience the surge. And that's not the only problem that we are starting to see now.
0: Yeah, you want to jump in, Sean? Here's my question. I think you are going to answer. I think you're about to answer maybe what I'm, what I'm about to ask, which is this was a country, right? When, when the pandemic was at its height in the Northern Hemisphere, um, South Africa was considered to be doing a really good job. They were being praised by the World Health Organization. They were being held up as an example um, against the behavior of these you know what people gen- the people we generally look towards and maybe not you and i but as, as these as societies the west so north america western europe and so south africa was held up it's like look what the south africans are doing it's like what what do you think is it i mean i have, i have my own suspicions but what is it you think is it that south africa did that now south africa is in this predicament is it just is it this that it's because it's a pandemic or is there some political choices that South Africa could have made?
1: Yeah, I think it
0: I think it's, has to do with political choices
1: that South Africa could have made. I think that the way the South African government approached the pandemic was very one-dimensional, which was to look at it as singularly being a public health crisis and failing to understand that the success of dealing with the public health crisis is intimately linked with also at the same time having a strong social and economic response to the pandemic. So I think that the narrow focus of the government was all we need to do is try and get our testing regime up, preparing our health system, and that would be the most important ways in which we can deal with the pandemic, which, don't get me wrong, are extremely important, but I think it's only one part of the approach. And what we've seen then is that in terms of providing adequate social relief to South Africans so that they can be placed in a position where they can, as far as possible, physically distance, that they're not going in public uh, as much as they ordinarily would be, that they're not having to rely on unsafe and dangerous public transportation. All of those parts which are necessary to ensure a successful lockdown, protracted lockdown, As we've been experiencing they've kind of overlooked that so to get to the point then on on sunday uh ramaphosa announced a new set of regulations which would change some of south africa's lockdown at the moment which has kind of been in the midst of a phased reopening so we began with a very hard lockdown in which all economic activity was shut and we're now slowly trying to reopen the economy and you know one of the ways in which we saw a kind of return to normal was alcohol sales being permitted. And on Sunday, the biggest announcement was that alcohol sales were going to be prohibited once again. And in the speech that Ramaphosa gave on Sunday night, he sort of focused on how one of the biggest reasons they chose to prohibit alcohol sales was that South Africans were not being responsible with their drinking. So we were seeing high cases of alcohol-related trauma incidents in hospitals that were filling up those beds. And the narrative that emerged from Sunday nights was kind of like this was the main reason why we're seeing our health system buckle under the pressure. But nothing was said about all of the other ways in which the government has been failing South Africans. So the fact that, for example, the COVID-19 stress relief grant, which was this 350 Rand grant that the South African government eventually decided after months of campaigning by civil society to give to South Africans who were unemployed, underemployed, or working in the informal sector. After deciding to give this grant, it received applications. It received more than seven million applications, more than two million people were rejected. And three months into the lockdown, Less than 2 million people have been paid to this grant. We're seeing lots of reports of municipal maladministration and misappropriation of funds. We're seeing so many cases of the government failing to make decisions in the best interest of its people and to care about its people. And it's now resorted to the strategy of scapegoating South Africans and saying that it's primarily their fault that the lockdown isn't working. It's their fault that the pandemic numbers are surging. As much as they are because they're being irresponsible in their behavior
0: and i think i think what's, what's very interesting about this and we want we want to move on to like another quick, quick three other topics which we really want to cover before we get to our guest. but one of the interesting things about this is south africa is not alone in the way that it has failed the government of south africa and how it responds to the pandemic i mean the case seems to be and again, it depends on the kind of government, the type of regime. You know, whether it's an authoritarian regime, or whether it's a, a government that is normally democratic or robustly democratic. But it is obvious that a number of countries, uh, African countries, have not done very well in this pandemic and have failed their citizens. Whether it might be in and South Africa was guilty of this, um, the the overzealous policing. I think the last number I saw was that the police in South Africa murdered twelve people. And again who were they murdering? Mostly black South Africans. Secondly, they have arrested. And this number shocked me. They've arrested over 230,000 people. And if you find out for what they've arrested people, so we're very zealous on arresting people rather than, as you sort of already pointing out, uh, providing people with the services to protect them against this pandemic. So they've arrested people for sitting outside their house. Uh, And in some cases, of course, as we've learned, it ended fatally. Similarly, uh, you know, we've seen this in in Kenya. This has happened in Kenya. We've seen the kind of response in Nigeria. There's just like it's been very dismal and very bad. And I can recommend at the end of this discussion, I would definitely recommend that people um, should look at uh, an article that that or a series of articles that is brought out by a group of academics. Um, informally, people refer to them, or somebody refers to them as the group of ninety, um, uh, led by um, Anna Waba, um, and Ndongo Salasila, who's from Senegal, Anamaba is based in, in the University of um, uh, uh, Bedvatus, right in Johannesburg, and also uh, Lionel Zurdu, who's with them. They actually released a number of um, statements that I think it's important for people to go read, which is, an, they started re- writing an open letter to African government to say like, hey, you're not doing your job well, why don't you take advice from us? Why don't you like take some advice from us on how to do this better? And I would definitely recommend um, uh, people look at those. Just two quick other hits before before we talk about one other topic quickly. Um, I want to mention one, uh, very few people may be aware um, that there's a political crisis in Mali um, and that one of the problems, um, we've been trying to cover this crisis in Mali on the website, but one of the problems with uh, trying to cover something like that, a very fast evolving scenario, is uh, by the time you try to write something about it, um, uh, things have moved, moved on. And since we're not a newspaper, um, we will have analysis about it at some point when things are clearer. Um, and I would, just for the sake of just a discussion, but just to give people on top of it, is that uh, the, you know to understand the events, you have to go back to the parliamentary elections in March and April, when the country's constitutional court overturned uh, provisional results which declared some members of the ruling party the victors of the contest, which they, by the way, did not even win and there was like a you know we've had like uh, weeks of protests we've had protesters killed we've had people take over the national television station as uh, well as attacked um the parliament but what's clear is like while those were the things that set off the protest um there's a lot more that's going on here people are mad or angry at the president's uh, handling of the economy and you can imagine in the middle of a pandemic that's him on the screen now uh, he's known as ibk um uh, and his idea was to just offer sort of concessions, but people at this point are just tired um, uh, uh, with, uh, um, you know, kind of just the sort of hold out politics of keeping keeping somebody in power who's very unpopular. And every time he offers a concession, the opposition is um, asking for more. And so one of the things we want to try and do is... Uh, the, and one last thing about the form of the protests are also... The form that they're taking are quite interesting, and who participates in them is quite interesting mostly young people are in these protests. And then at the same time, the symbolic leader of these protests is a very conservative Imam. Um, and so we're gonna be watching this uh, um, over the next couple of weeks. And then one other one, which I know will want to add something to is the ongoing um, political crisis um, in Ethiopia. And similarly there, it's also striking, you won't see this only the, on, the um, uh, on the front pages of major newspapers, on the front pages of their websites, or you won't see it on, you'll see sort of slivers of it, like quick, quick, and they move on. But there you have a crisis in which uh, uh, Abiy Ahmed, he got uh, he wasn't elected. It was a party election, the dominant party that's a one-party state, um, made him the leader after a political crisis in uh, 2018. He then set off on a, a set of political reforms, which most people like, releasing political prisoners, appointing opposition figures to be judges, to run commissions, um, you know, opening up, opening up the political space. Uh, and, and so a lot of people were very excited. Ethiopia was going to have elections. Elections, unfortunately, were postponed because of uh, COVID-19. And the latest, is, the latest flashpoint is the killing of a very popular singer called, um, and I'm probably going to mangle his name, Hachalu Undesa, who is a Oromo singer. Um, and uh, you know, part of part of the crisis in Ethiopia is not just the economic crisis, the kind of economic policies that the president is pursuing, but also um, uh, kind of the nature of the Ethiopian state or the nature the nature of Ethiopian national identity. So, so it's taking an ethnic form. And uh, um, Hachela was uh, Hachalu, sorry, was a was a Romo singer, and um, the interestingly, the state then arrested. A very prominent Oromo activist, uh, Jawar Mohammed, who used to live in the U.S. but is now back in Ethiopia. This he was used to be an ally of Abiy, um, and now there's you know these protests are going on. Um, but as I said, at the heart of the debate is Ethiopian identity and Ethiopia and the nature of the Ethiopian state. But I will say this: we we will cover these, and we have some pieces lined up to break some of these things down. We're going to bring back an old uh, item that we call. Um, all about this, where we try to give people ideas of what they could read, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One, one quick thing, though, Sean, to say about, about Ethiopia, which I think is also interesting, is that all of this political turmoil domestically is also happening at the same time when geopolitical tensions are also escalating. So Ethiopia is preparing to launch the Grand Renaissance Dam, which would be the largest hydroelectric power plant on the continent, something that can provide lots of power to Ethiopia's more than 110 million citizenry. And the flashpoint or the the contention around the building of this dam is that most of its water, if not all of its water, is going to be sourced from the Nile River. The Nile River is Africa's longest river. It's the world's longest river. And it's shared by a lot of countries. And the Blue Nile, which is the tributary that goes into Ethiopia, is shared by Egypt as well as Sudan. So there's a conflict that's been, it, that's been there for the last couple of years where Egypt has said that if Ethiopia builds this massive hydroelectric power plant, which it has, and they don't conclude a deal about how it should go about conducting the operation of this power plant, then Egypt could potentially suffer water shortages Water shortages as its reliance on the rivers cut off by its servicing this massive dam. Uh, Egypt massively relies on the Nile for provision of water to most of its citizens and most of its agricultural production. So it has a massive interest there. And there have been a series of talks which have been happening over the last couple of years. The Trump administration tried to get involved in the talks at one stage, but the latest round of talks has been spearheaded by the African Union. Those concluded on Monday, and an agreement, unfortunately, was not reached. And Egypt at the moment is saying that the intervention of the United Nations Security Council is required so that they can reach a deal about how exactly Ethiopia should conduct its business in the Nile River, and that's going to be an interesting geopolitical development to watch, and people should keep their eyes on that as well.
0: Yeah, I'm back again. I just had to, I know this is uh, this is going live, so quick apologies. One, our sound is uh, like, and the images are going in and out. We We're still in the 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 bad internet zone, we're working on improving um, those things over the next couple of weeks. So, um, as somebody say, pray for us, Um, but the thing I wanted to quickly uh, say on this, we are actually, the funny thing about all these is that we have pieces coming up about this, but because the nature of Africa as a country is we try to move slowly through these topics and understand them, and when they're ready, we will write about them, but in the meantime, you can always um, check us out on Twitter. So, checking out the site regularly, bookmark us, um, and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Checking on the site, um, and also, as I said at the start of the program, on on the YouTube channel, feel free to tweet us your questions or to post them on Facebook, and we're happy to to um, respond to them at the end of the program when we're done uh, with the interview. Well, you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Zinzi Mandela, right? Yeah, yeah, um, uh,
1: South Africa's. Is- COVID-19 got a bit worse on on Monday. Uh, A South African struggle icon, Zinzi Mandela, passed away. Uh, She was South Africa's ambassador to Denmark. She passed away on Monday uh, at the age of 59. Her cause of death at this stage has not been disclosed, and people are speculating, um, but no one really has any concrete speculations of what happened. She died suddenly in a hospital here in Johannesburg. Uh, she was born on the twenty-third of December, nineteen sixty. Uh, was the youngest daughter of former South African statesman Nelson Mandela and Winnie Matigizela Mandela, who passed away in two thousand eighteen. Uh, Zinzi was actually only eighteen months old when her father went to prison, and her mother also went to prison, to Pretoria Prison, not long after that, for for about maybe two and a half years. And at the age of 16, Zinzi, her mother, and her sister Zanani were carted off from their home in Soweto to the desolate and dusty town of Brandfort in the Free State, where they were virtually under house arrest and were subject to a lot of harassment and surveillance from the apartheid police. But despite all of that, she somehow managed to attend high school in Swaziland, and then went on to pursue a law degree at the University of Cape Town. And in fact, in her final year of studying for that law degree was the same year when she would get international attention and recognition. Upon graduating um, in 1985, uh, she read out a statement by her father, Nelson Mandela, who at that time was offered a conditional release from prison by then apartheid president B.W. Buerta. And she read her father's letter rejecting Buerta's offer of conditional release. Uh, one of the conditions was that he renounced violence completely as a political tool. And she read this, this letter in a bracing and impassioned speech to thousands of people at the Jabulani Stadium in Soweto. Uh, I think that it was a United Democratic Front gathering. And the gathering was was held to commemorate um, um to commemorate Desmond Tutu winning the Nobel Peace Prize. And there's there's an iconic photo. There are a bunch of iconic photos of her at the gathering in the UDF Yellow uh, with her fists raised, surrounded by excited crowds. And this is when she was launched into into the political arena and came into her own as a South African political figure. Um, And and since then, she's been a mainstay of of South African politics. Um, You know, you could talk about her life and a lot of its defining moments there was her being very close to her mother during the very turbulent 90s in South Africa. The 90s were a, a turbulent time for, for the Mandela family, not just because Nelson was president of the country, but it was also the time when when Winnie was increasingly harassed by the apartheid police, and she was charged with, with murder for the activities of her group of bodyguards. And, and we could talk about that, but I don't want to talk about, about that history and I don't want to talk about, about Zinzi's uh, Zinzi's political life through her mother's eyes and through her mother's influence. What I want to talk about is, is who Zinzi was in recent South African history. Um, I think she's a, a political figure who was very controversial for two, two South Africans very recently. Um, I think one of the reasons that was the case was people kind of expect that. If you're, the tr- if you're the child and uh, the spawn of, of a struggle icon, you're always going to be trying to relentlessly and unquestioningly defend their legacy. And as much as Zinzi didn't trample on her family's legacy, she very much was critical of it. Um, in recent years, for example, she has been in increasing, she was increasingly critical of South Africa's post-apartheid settlements and on whether or not the national liberation hegemony that the ANC had established really was in the interest for the majority of South Africans. So last year, for example, she stirred controversy when she took shots at apartheid apologists and called them land thieves. Uh, she tweeted at one stage, dear apartheid apologists, your time is over. You will not rule again. We do not fear you. Finally, the land is ours. And in the coming months she she came out as a supporter of land redistribution and land redistribution without compensation and land is a hot button issue in south africa and it's one that we're going to talk about in depth with our, with our guest dylan valley i should say also and also earlier this year she was very critical of the african national congress's decision to include fw de Klerk in the state of the nation address now the reason she was critical which is a very good one is that a few days earlier in an interview that was commemorating the 30th anniversary of Nelson Mandela's release from prison, uh, De Klerk expressed that he did not agree with the United Nations declaration that apartheid was a crime against humanity. And in response to that, Zinzi tweeted that, as a loyal and dedicated member of the ANC, I am heartbroken that this happened to my mother and many others under De Klerk's watch. So she was a fierce critic of not only the apartheid government and a fighter against the apartheid government, but she was also unafraid to be a critic of the African National Congress and its current rule of South Africa. So it's, it's a tremendous loss, and it's a tremendous loss not only because of who Zinzi was and not only in itself being that someone passed away, but also because of who she was becoming and the role she was playing in south african politics stirring i think very uncomfortable conversations but very much necessary conversations
0: i think uh, i think people underestimate the extent to which the the mandela woman um, because they were always de- defined and i think there was a, there was some tweets about this when she passed away by the way that people you know they were being defined wow. by their father by her father or in the case of her mother um by her husband nelson and i think it's been it's been fascinating and, and and we need this kind of revisionism which is not to reduce either winnie mandela or zinzi mandela as merely these kind of appendages of nelson mandela but actually that they've they've had a they always had their own opinions and that they suffered they suffered similarly, or sometimes even more. And I've written about Winnie Mandela in this case, um, where they've been unfairly maligned, and that might be also partly because after 1994, uh, or let's say starting in the early 1980s, and then leading into the sort of period after 1994, that you um, that you had a a, um, a kind of consensus in South Africa developing around a particular view of how South Africa about the future of South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that they did a lot, they did a lot and more and more so more recently um, with the emergence of Peace Must Fall in South Africa and um, Roads Must Fall. They've done a lot because of the students questioning the, the, the nature of the political negotiations, the deal that was made between the African National Congress and the Clerics Party, the National Party and at the same time with South African Capital and sort of questioning the basis of that deal and suggesting that maybe there, there could be a different kind of future for South Africa. So on that note, we just wanted to say rest in peace, uh, Zinzi Mandela.
1: Rest in peace indeed. And just to make one final comment, I think that they, they were questioning the legacy of, of rainbowism, which is this ideology that you speak about, which constructed the post-apartheid settlement as being the best route that South Africa took and the only route that could deliver just an equitable future for the country, and we can have debates about the manner in which they questioned that, but I think it was important that it had to be questioned. Um, I think one thing a lot of people were uncomfortable with is that they were pivoting closer and closer to the economic freedom fighters, this you know populist political party that split away from the ANC, and I think sort of captures what the the Fees Must Fall generation was all about, which was the beginnings of this questioning of the national liberation movement and whether or not it is able to deliver justice to South Africans. But on that note, I think this is the perfect time to take a break. When we come back, we're going to have our guest, Dylan Valley, and we're going to get into the discussion about land in South Africa. One of those issues which South Africans started questioning in the midst of starting to become disillusioned with the national liberation movement. So stay tuned. Please send in your questions and comments. And we'll be back in a minute.
2: Just check them out.
1: Hey, uh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, I don't know if you can see me. Uh, I hope you can. But welcome back, everybody. Um, once again, just an, an apology from us about all of the, the internet issues. Uh, I think this is probably what happens when you begin quoting Wale Soyinka on his unwelcome views about the internet. You sort of get a bad juice. <laughs> So maybe next time, Sean, we should steer clear of, of criticizing the internet. Otherwise, the internet will strike back and will strike back fiercely. Um, but anyway, welcome, welcome back to the show. Uh, we hope that you were able to get some comments in, you were able to stretch your legs or to get a glass of water. Moving on to the next segment of our show, which is a very, very exciting one. Our guest today is Dylan Valley. <laughs> Dylan is an editorial board member of Africa's country, but more than that, he is an accomplished filmmaker and academic based in Cape Town, South Africa. In 2013, he received a Pulitzer Fellowship from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, where he did his master's in specialized journalism. His master's was actually on the groundbreaking web series, The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl by Issa Ray. Uh, which was the precursor to the now-renowned television series, Insecure. I think some of that footage um, is on the Africa is a Country YouTube channel, so you should all check that out. And the reason he is here on today's show is to talk about his new virtual reality documentary, which was released in January 2020. It's called *Azibuye: The Occupation, and it premiered at the prestigious... Sundance Film Festival in the New Frontiers category, but other than that, he's made many documentaries for South African and international television, including the award-winning Afrikaps in 2010, the uprising of Hamburg in 2010, and Jamua in 2011, as well as Incarcerated Knowledge in 2013. Dylan, welcome to the show. We are so glad to finally have you on.
2: Hey, well, thank you so much for having me on. And hey, Sean, nice to nice to be in the chat. I want to say something like long time viewer, first time caller, or something like that. Isn't that isn't that usually what people saying? <laughs> I think in this case it would be it would be uh, like
1: <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but we haven't great
1: been around
0: be for a long time. But, uh, <laughs> Except the from the
2: beginning. I, I lost you guys a bit there. I couldn't hear what you were saying.
1: I was just saying that we haven't been around for a long time, but you've you've been with us from the beginning, nevertheless.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I was the first comment <laughs> on the live stream. I wrote the first comment on the live stream, so <laughs> that should actually go in my bio. Next time I get invited to do something like this, I can I can do it now very quickly. Dylan Valley,
1: our distinguished guest, is also the first person to comment on AISC talk, which is his biggest achievement in his life so far. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dylan, uh, we we are so happy to have you on the show. Um, you've just recently released the film Azibuiere, uh, premiered at the Sundance Festival, which is such. A phenomenal achievement. Um, please tell us a little bit more about this film, Azimuryeh, which means let it come back. What is it about and, and what
2: should come back exactly? Yes, thanks. Um, yeah, so the film basically uh, means let it come back um, and it's about um, a housing occupation. So the film's really talking about land and in South Africa, we always talk about uh, how the land must come back to the people um, and so the film is really about two activists who um, decide to um, take it upon themselves to um, take back a piece of this used land that's sitting in the city um, in Johannesburg um, and occupy. And um, so the film is actually a th- 360 documentary. Um, it's a virtual reality film um, where we took a 360 camera inside of the occupation. And as a viewer, you're meant to be able to feel like you're actually occupying the space um, yourself Um, and also take part in some of these political conversations that are happening inside the house, which is about uh, land redistribution um, and also disused urban land, kind of trying to reframe the conversation of of, uh, land away from, say, like agrarian land or farming to actually like also looking at urban land. so that's really, what, in, in a nutshell, what the film is about. Um, and they follow two characters, um, Ivan Abramser and Marcelo Mortana, who are both artists in their own right and also activists in their own right. And, um, and so, yeah, that's the film. It's basically a 10-minute film um, about them and their occupation.
1: That's extremely, I mean, it's extremely fascinating, but it's also extremely timely um, because something that we, we're seeing happening throughout the world right now during the pandemic is just an unbelievable, ex- the unbelievable extent and the brutality of, of housing evictions, especially in urban areas. In last week's show, for example, and you should all check that out with our guest Saeed, we drew parallels between housing evictions here in. South Africa, as well as housing evictions in Nigeria as well. So when it comes to this act that these two individuals, that your film covers, the act that they've done, is it primarily as as an act of protest? Is it an act of activism? Or is it something that also arose as a fact of their material conditions as these two individuals? Did they themselves need shelter and at the same time felt that... Their destitute material conditions could also form the basis of a political protest, as a lot of land occupations end up being.
2: Yeah, I think it's that's a good question. I think it's it's a complicated answer. I think they would answer by saying that they needed a place to stay and they didn't have money for rent, so they would they would say it was out of necessity. Uh, a lot of people who've watched the film kind of questioned that because of um, the fact that they are artists, they're kind of well known, um, especially Marcelo is quite well known. Um, Ivan himself was a member of we Wessizwe, so we're talking a little bit earlier about uh, Zinzi Mandela and Nelson Mandela, who obviously is one of the founders of We Wessizwe. So, like, the thing is, like, um, yeah so a lot of members of of where m k as we call them now actually homeless today apparently it's it's really complicated it's kind of like it's i think for them it's both a choice and it's a necessity at the same time. i think at some point they decided to opt out of um of the what they would what they call uh paying rent in on stolen land. Um, and so they they began a a political project, actually actually avoiding that kind of thing. so um, it's I think it's both a choice and necessity. I think they do occupy a precarious position in society as a lot of artists in South Africa actually do, um, because we don't have a lot of the um, kind of cushioning that many artists do in the West or robust um, industries. so we we are kind of, we are always kind of uh, in between, um, you know, for we, we live from paycheck to paycheck usually. Um, and so that's, that's, that's the situation, right? Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, they would definitely say for them, it's completely out of necessity, but at the same time, it is a political act as well. Um, but, it's, but this is also what makes the occupation really interesting in a South African point of view, because occupations are happening all the time, um, and, you know, housing occupations are happening all the time, but for, but South Africans are not used to seeing people who we would normally consider middle class engaging in something like an occupation and being able to talk political theory while they're doing it, um, in the middle of it. So I think in that sense, it's also what makes these two characters really um, exciting to watch because normally when we think of occupations, we think about it uh, in very different ways. It's, it's, uh, we, we usually engage with occupations when we see the evictions of people and the way that you were talking about uh, with Saeed last week. Um, so so this is what makes this, this film, I think particularly exciting in the South African context and the African context as well.
0: I mean, I, I, I'm just on that. And actually that's one of the, and I've seen, I saw the film, I'm not sure the version I saw, um, I think it was the end of last year when you were in New York City, I saw a version of it and I'm not sure like, you know, whether the the eventual product is much different from that and I'm hoping people can hear me because I've had some problems uh, with, with the internet today, but, but so I really like the fact that you addressed uh, kind of land struggle as an urban struggle in South Africa, because one of the problems with the debate in South Africa is that uh, the various political parties, including the ones who claim to be very radical on land reform, what they do is they're talking primarily about farming. And so when it is true in South Africa that even way more than rural land, when we talk about the Land Act and, you know, what that whole process starting in uh, 1913, that a lot of that land dispossession in South Africa happened in an urban area. And I really, for me, this was very powerful about the film that it, it kind of tackles this in an urban context and as you said and i also think that this is interesting that they then take on uh, uh take land in a in a very w- a rich wealthy suburb of South africa so they confront they confront the story of like land hunger which i understand it was a house that nobody was using it was just standing there and they took this land is there like a movement around kind of taking urban land, and as you said, not land on the outskirts of cities next to townships. Is there is there a movement, I can just think of an example in Cape Town, where people were forcefully removed from these many parts of the city uh, that, that sort of are on, uh, on, on the edge of the mountain, which is the more lucrative, you know, the, the better parts of Cape Town, and nobody's actually ever thought, hey, what if we who used to live there can take go back to those neighborhoods, and just take those properties that he's living in. I mean, is there a movement like that in South Africa, or is this, or is this mostly, as you describe it, uh, this is these are artists? You know, this is, this is there's an extent to which this is an this could be seen as an art project. It's a political act, but it's also uh, it's also doing art. I mean, is there is there is there like a larger movement around this kind of land land invasion in South Africa?
1: So uh, for our viewers, um, I think we're struggling with Sean's audio. So I'll just repeat his question to, so that everyone else can hear it. Yeah, apologies once again. Uh, Sean's in America, which is this large third world <laughs> country where they have really bad internet. So just what happens. Um, but yeah, Sean's question, Dylan, he was asking about the extent to which there is a movement to reclaim urban land And the reason why that question is important is the setup of the question is that in South Africa, especially a lot of political parties, when they talk about land reform, focus disproportionately on agrarian land, failing to acknowledge that a lot of the dispossession which happened during apartheid, not only through the Native Land Act, but also through the Group Areas Act, for example, was about dispossessing people in urban areas from their land. And what's so interesting about this case that is undertaken by these two activists and artists is that instead of it being a response to a housing eviction, as you were saying earlier, it was two characters who went into the city, who went into a wealthy area, who found a house, and who decided to occupy it. So is that happening elsewhere? Um, there's been some cases of that in, in Cape Town, for example, but is this something that is, that is happening? To what extent is it happening? And what are your thoughts on putting the spotlight on urban land projects and redistributing land in urban areas where a lot of spatial typographies means that people are unevenly distributed, not only in terms of land, but in terms of access to amenities and the city centers where economic activity happens?
2: Yeah, so actually, there is a lot of stuff happening. Um, so, so, the film um, that I made and the occupation um, that I was filming is in Johannesburg. And in Cape Town, they've actually been, over the past few, few years, there have been some interesting developments in terms of um, occupations that are happening as a response specifically to gentrification. So, there's an organization called Reclaim the City in Cape Town, and they um, they facilitated a community response to gentrification in Woodstock in Cape Town, which is uh, one of the most hard hit uh, neighborhoods um, in, in terms of gentrification, probably in the world. And it's really well documented in the film, not in my neighborhood by um, Kurt Ordison, who's a friend of ours um and essentially um the, uh, in in Woodstock there's a there's a hospital there's an old hospital which was disused, used and it was actually owned by the city um and the city were planning uh, they say they were planning to do something with that uh that building they wanted to develop it into something else um but it had been standing empty for many years and so Reclaim the city, then organize an occupation of, of this hospital. Um, and I've been also fighting the city um, on other issues where they are planning to sell um, land in in the city. So, so They're planning to sell disused urban land or old buildings, which could be converted into low-cost housing. They're actually wanting to sell it off to private um, investors and so on. Now, uh, the city are saying, when it comes to uh, Sissy Ghoul House, which is the old hospital, they're saying, oh, they actually they want those people out because they um, they wanted to actually build low-cost housing there, which I don't think they were really planning on doing. Um, so that's also an exciting development. Uh, what's interesting about that occupation also is that the people who are occupying that, um, that, that building are very well-organized. They kind of have a... A uh, a community structure within that building itself, um, which is self-organized and run quite well. Also, a lot of the people who live there—they actually apparently used to even go to that hospital when it was still operational. They used—they—they they, because the hospital serviced that community. So when they were evicted from that community, um, they actually moved into into the hospital in the same area. So there are things like this happening. Um, I think. All across uh, Cape Town, I've heard of other occupations that are that are happening that are not yet haven't yet been uh, organized, but stuff that's similar to what Marcelo and Ivana are doing, with, where they are occupying uh, prime land. Um, I also made another documentary about um, you. You mentioned it earlier; it's called the Uprising of a Hangberg. Which is about police brutality in Ho Bay, where it's essentially also about occupation, but it's about building um, houses on uh, on on government land on city land so you so uh, and this is in like kind of prime property uh, as well and kind of uh, the the really violent ways in which you see the city of Cape Town um, clamp down on people um, in, who are building houses like this so this is this kind of thing, is, and that was about ten years ago that we made this film. When uh, a few few days ago, a few weeks ago, the city was engaging in similar kind of violent uh, demolitions of houses that were being built in the same neighborhood. Um, and this was during the 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 lockdowns. So it was like during the pandemic, um, and the city was busy demolishing houses in the rain. So. Uh, these kinds of things are happening um, all the time, and they've been happening. And in the film, we also try and make a make a link to how these kind of neoliberal policies are a continuation of uh, land dispossession and um, the colonial encounter. Um, and so it's really important, I think, to really think about these things as connected, because now when in Cape Town, if... If you if you want to evict somebody you call the anti-land invasion unit so it's when people who are well it's, and it's always black South Africans when they're occupying land they're seen as land invaders which I think is really ironic uh, and I and I say ironic uh, I guess that's a euphemism for what what it actually for what what it actually is um, but yeah, I feel like I'm just, I feel like I could just go on a tangent here. But yeah, keen to hear what you guys think. Uh, that, was a, that, that was a fantastic response. I mean, I, I
1: love the point about the irony of it being called an anti-land invasion unit. Um, not just because of the history of dispossession, but I mean, all the time it's the city's own land. How can the people you're serving invade the land that is supposed to be there to serve them? But, I mean, anyway, to to ask another question, um, I think one thing that's super interesting about your film, and it sort of becomes, I think, uh, uh, an interesting fact about the film and about this specific act of occupation, but I think one that is also representative about South Africa's land discourse and in ways that I think compels us to think in more nuanced ways about the way we approach land discourse. So... In the film it's it's mentioned that these two activists and artists who are occupying this house as a protest of white land ownership um, discover that the house is actually owned by a black person right um, I mean how does how does that sort of detail um, how does that detail affect the way the two characters? approach their active occupation? And how do you think that's reflective of the way South Africans approach the land discourse in South Africa, which I think sometimes um, ends up being trapped too narrowly in the prism of race, but then also ignores the class dimension and ignores that when we talk about land redistribution, we're not talking about land redistribution as some sort of historical compensation for the dispossession that Black South Africans suffered, But we're talking about land redistribution to meet people's needs, to give them things Mm. such as housing, to give them things such as productive land in which they can meet their own subsistence and things like
2: that. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, And yeah, I think that that's also why um, it was really important that we included that in the story. It was kind of a, when we found out about that, it it was a surprise also for us who were making the film that we all assumed that the person's house who uh, the person who had left this house standing for like 20 years and just kind of abandoned it was uh, a rich white guy who didn't didn't even need the house and, obviously, and that's why it was just kind of leaving it to, to rot there uh, so we were quite surprised to find it was a black South African who had bought the house from somebody like that do I just <laughs> mention um, and so it then changes the the question around um, you know, how do you go about uh, land redistribution is in this kind of self-organized way. For some people that in that occupation there was also a line they weren't willing to cross. So, so some people left. Um, so we talk about it in the film as well. So some people who started out in the occupation, actually, when they found out that the, the house was owned by a black South African, they were like, well, this is not the political. Um, you know, this is not the, the political ideals that I'm standing for. So I'm not, That's not the project that I'm here for. So I'm leaving. Um, but um, Marcelo and Ivan talk about it in ways of, they are, they, they continue to occupy because they felt the principle was still the same. In fact, it, it, because of this house being this unused and nobody was there, the owner might've been black, but he, ha- he had left the house standing empty for 20 years and so on, right? Um, and he owned different properties, so it it then opens yeah it, it broadens the question uh further than just race. And I think that that's important, like you say, because land re- re- redistribution is not about it's not about taking stuff away from people. It's about giving stuff to people. And actually, there there are models that of land redistribution that don't really involve like physically taking uh, you know your like somebody's camp bay mansion away from them right so while some people well in some cases yeah that would actually be ideal yeah let's like why why do you get to inherit this like this amazing mansion in prime property but there's also ways of land distribution that redistribution that could be done uh, in ways where where that isn't happening but we need to actually have those conversations there's a lot of um, land owned by the state for example that could be used, that could be repurposed and uh, distributed to people. There's also many South Africans who had land taken away from them, who owned land, Black South Africans who, would, who had land taken away. So that also needs to be addressed, um, and people need to get what's theirs. They need to, and and so in those cases, yes, justice does need also to be served. Um, so and some. And some of those things are in process, but it is taking a long time. Um, so yeah, it's it's very, it's, it's complicated, but also there are, are solutions out there. What's needed is um, action and political will, but also I think what's exciting about uh, this occupation in particular is kind of, it's the self-organization around us. It. So it's not waiting for government to come on board. It's actually people saying, well, until you guys sort that out, we're gonna we're gonna just do it for ourselves and we're gonna find a way to do it that's also um, safe so that we don't you know so it's also legal so they found also legal loopholes around it. and I think that's also um, that's also really interesting in terms of playing a game from this kind of uh, from from the like the war of the flea. you like much smaller, but you can do. Um, you can actually do a lot from where you are.
0: Um, Dylan, I, I hope you can hear me. Uh, yeah can so the question I have is you you're a committed filmmaker and i'm I'm sort of curious as to why you picked VR, which i I'm assuming is not a widely available technology in South Africa. and of course you'd like to intervene and debate about land reform. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Talking about uh, virtual reality in particular. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it isn't really, you know, it isn't very accessible at the moment. The way that the film came about was it was it was kind of, um, it wasn't that I wanted to make a film about land and then I wanted to make a film about this occupation and then I thought VR would be the best way to do it. Um, I had the opportunity to make a VR documentary through um, Electric South, um, which is a residency um, in South Africa and also a nonprofit who promotes um, immersive storytelling in the continent. So I had this opportunity to make the film through them after taking part in their residency. And um, I thought I already knew about the occupation. I knew Marcelo Ivan, and I kind of knew that the form would fit well in terms of um being immersed in a space and actually feeling like you're inside of this occupied building which is a really interesting building as well in terms of how it had kind of crumbled over 20 years and how they were then reworking it to to make it a more livable space um and so for me it was i i was kind of really experimenting with the form and i think it works uh, really well in terms of doing in terms of looking at spaces, but also allowing people to feel a greater empathy for what's happening and really walking in someone else's shoes and I think it can be used in very i think because v r is not very accessible yet to people um especially on the continent i think it's i think it can be used in very targeted ways um it's not it's not necessarily a popular platform yet but it if if you get it in the hands of the right people, it can really change and and, uh, and it can really swing hearts and minds. I think because it's so immersive. Um, but also, I found that people I thought nobody would be able to watch it, but people have been watching it through the Grahamstown or through the Makanda National Arts Festival, um, and they actually a lot of people just watching it on their phones and using the phone in a more kind of AR way, where you kind of tracking. The film through using a phone, and people are still kind of getting the storytelling um, anyway from the film. So I think that's kind of the solution to the to that problem of accessibility of VR, which I think is a, an exciting space, especially for African filmmakers. Is that we can just kind of develop a model where we we focus more on using mobile technologies um, in some of these immersive uh, uh, platforms. And technologies that would be the best way to do it because most people have smartphones. Uh, well, many like smartphone uh, penetration is huge in the continent. Um, so that that's actually I think the way to do it. And also because because this language is so new in terms of VR and AR, um, there's opportunities for African filmmakers to to help to define what it is because it doesn't have that same baggage that I think that cinema um, does so we I think that's what what's exciting uh, for for VR and the content if we can just get more if we can just get more people into it and get more people watching um, which I think I think people are curious already.
0: I have one last question and and I think our audience is very shy today. I don't know if you can hear me again um, so we're gonna just ask you one more question and we'll let it we'll let it go there. You mentioned uh, the entire f- the, the the film showed at the National Arts Festival of South Africa in uh, Grahamstown in South Africa, and for people who don't know, this is an event that is a um, it's like a like a, a, a you know it's a staple on the South African arts calendar. It happens every year. All the artists go down to the Eastern Cape province of South Africa, and you know there's jazz, there's film. And, and your film was showing in that festival, and you mentioned that the, the, all the films were streamed, and I understand that the streaming went really well, which, which brings me to this last question, which is that there's been a lot, uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, filming because of COVID. A lot of people are just watching and streaming things online. And it, it's been interesting that streaming is taking the place, uh, well, we know that Netflix is now making movies that wins Oscars. Uh, Etc. Wins Emmys. So streaming has become very big, and streaming has also become very big for content that are made by Africans for Africans, and a lot of that stuff is put on Netflix. What do you think about Netflix? Um, what do you think about what we see on on, on Netflix? This the, the stuff that that's being exhibited there by Africans for Africans and by Africans to the rest of the world. Um, do you do you, do you think that's been that's helped? Uh, or help deal with the inequalities about the kind of things that we see about Africans um, or that we view online or that we see on the streaming services? Uh,
1: so, to, to play my role as, as Sean's translator, which is an enjoyable role, I have to say, Sean's one question, um, if people couldn't hear, Sean was asking about uh, Dylan. What's your opinion of streaming services? Uh, so obviously your, your film was shown at the National Arts Festival, the context being for those who aren't in South Africa, that the National Arts Festival is this important event on the South African arts calendar. It usually happens in Makanda, which was formerly known as Grahamstown. And people generally go to the festival um, and spend a week there. But now in the era of physical distancing, life has migrated online. And because life has migrated online, people are consuming a lot of their content online, including on these streaming platforms like Netflix. So because now there's a lot of production, so that African production that is is making its way into these streaming platforms like Netflix, do you think that's changing the way Africans are represented? Do you think it's changing the way we understand our own issues? Is it changing the way the world understands us? And before you answer the question, I just wanna I want to shout out to someone who's written for Africa as a Country, who's also a friend of mine and of a, 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 stu- a former student of Dylan's, uh, Tsoho Cooper, who's written a review of Queen Sono, and the, the Netflix um, spy thriller, um, and his review's available on Africa as a Country, so you should check that out um, for some commentary on that. So yeah, what's your opinion, Dylan, of all of, our, of us being on Netflix, uh, us meaning Africans, I guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, shout out to Soho as well. You actually took the words right out of my mouth. I was actually just about to say that. I really enjoyed reading his review um, of Queen Sono. I think especially what was really interesting about what Soho said in that piece is that, you know, like, it's, it's both great that... Netflix is investing all this money in Africa and also that it's aimed at like a larger audience. It's not just aimed within the African continent, Queen Sono, for example, you know, and uh, another show, Blood and Water, you can watch, you know, anywhere you watch it globally. And it's had really good ratings and a good response. Um, But on the one hand, um, also we then have to kind of create content that can speak to to a global audience. And that comes with its own pressures for, Creators, because then you have to think: like, is I really want to tell the story, but is it going to be relatable to um, somebody sitting in California, like swooping through Netflix and deciding what to watch? So I think it might be early to tell because it's the first time we kind of um, this kind of content is out there in this way. Where we, television is is kind of the kind of the rules of television are. Uh, uh turned upside down a little bit because of platforms like Netflix. Um, but I think uh, I do think, and I do agree with Soho in that piece, that we we really need a new language for African cinema. We really need to cultivate our own language um, for African cinema and African TV. And looking at kind of Pan African ideals and so and so on. I think if Netflix uh and streaming services like that can allow for that kind of thing i think that would be great because if you give if you're going to give people that kind of freedom that would be awesome i do think that um the people who, who uh, the production companies who made stuff like uh, queen Sono, they've had to and, and blood and water they've really had to kind of think about how do we create something that feels true to us but also that can fit inside of uh, that's accessible and exciting to audiences, that and that they can relate to in terms of in terms of genre and so so on. So um, I think uh, I hope I'm answering the question. I feel like I just went around in a full circle. But to answer, I would say read Soho's piece. I think it's really good, um, and I do think um, I do think that we should um, we should continue the conversation of. How do we maintain a kind of autonomy um, as African filmmakers in this time? Because I think it is an exciting time. And I think that the, the influx of all this investment into African content could, could actually allow us to see sides of ourselves we don't normally get to see because of what funding bodies, how they normally operate and how, how the kind of things that they want us to do. But often like in South Africa, even locally, Funding bodies want you to produce a three-act Hollywood structure, so that that is something that I think needs to change. Yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, it's all it's both
1: a it's both a blessing and a curse in a way. Um, and in order to make it something that speaks to our context, it's up to us to do that. And and Dylan is one of those filmmakers who's certainly doing that. Um, Dylan Azibuye, if Ordinary people want to catch it. Uh, is it available now, um, given that the, the National Arts Festival has concluded, if I'm not mistaken? So when will be people's next opportunity to, to see the film?
2: So as far as I understand it, it's still up on the, the website. You should be able to watch it on the National Arts Festival's website. Um, and I think if you Google South Africa National Arts Festival, you should be able to find the website. And it'll still be up on there uh, with a whole bunch of other stuff from the festival that's showing. Um, and, the, and like Sean mentioned earlier, the whole festival had to go online this year. So it's also an interesting time to check out how um, local productions have uh, managed to adapt in this moment as well. Um, so yeah, check it out. I don't know when it, when it will be shown again. So this might be the last time in a while to see it because of, Festivals also going, um, for, for the uncertainty around festivals. But also, what's great about it is that um, there's so much stuff happening online now. So, there, there will most likely be another opportunity to watch it online wherever you are. So, I would follow uh, Electric South, um, their Instagram and their Twitter and all their social medias if you want to keep up to date with where the film is and other. Uh, VR productions that are coming out of Africa, not only uh, in South Africa, but places like Lagos and Tanzania and so forth. So I think it's really exciting uh, what Electric South are doing.
1: Thank you so much for that. And there's also a fantastic review of Dylan's film, which came out today on the Bubblegum Club, written by Cindy Lee McBride. Cindy's also a contributor to Africa as a Country so everyone should go check out that review it's a fantastic review it gives you an understanding of the film and it hopefully will appetize you to go and check it out it's a fantastic film dylan and you've been a fantastic guest uh thank you so much for thank coming you on. this is this is definitely not the last uh we will see of you um hopefully sean's internet is is going to be better next week he says um, I don't know how that's going to be possible. Is he going to move out of his third world country, the United States? <laughs> I don't know what, he's doing to get his internet back. Um, I can't translate that. He's making some signs. I don't know what those yeah. mean. Um, <laughs> saying,
0: I think He's saying, you know, bit, Lord, like, like Lord. I said, I was saying you're my anger translator. Will is yeah. my anger translator. You know, Obama had an anger translator. <laughs> Will's mine. So
1: to translate what Sean just said, Sean just said that Obama had an anger translator, uh, and i Short's anger translator. Um, well, way where do you, where do put you and Obama in the same camp there, Sean? <laughs> um, but thank you very much, everyone, for those who tuned in. Uh, it's been a fantastic show. Apologies for for all of the internet lags and the the bad audio. We're still in our pilot phase, so we hope to be in the coming months to figure out what the correct format is, to get our production up and running, to get better internet, um, and we'll continue to have fantastic guests and to bring them back on. Dylan, thank you so much for coming, um, and we hope to see you soon. So thank you everyone for watching. Um, please tune in next week. Please keep on the lookout for all of the pieces that are gonna be coming up on the site in the coming week. And another big shout out and thanks to Antoinette Engel, who is the producer of the show. She works very hard to try and keep us as picturesque as possible, and our audio as crisp as possible, which is a very hard job um, when Sean's in uh, a country as backward as the United States. But we, we try. Um, and thank you very much, everyone, for tuning in. And we will see you next week. There's Antoinette. Thank you so much, Antoinette. Thank you very much, everyone. See you next week.